you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 15, the black pew Bible, page 15. The Apostle Paul's epistle to the church in Rome, in chapter 12, he gives a, a list of the marks of a Christian, marks of Christian conduct, how a Christian should live. One of the things that he says there in verse 18, he writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians are called not only to love one another, not only to love our neighbor, but also our enemy. We're not simply to separate ourselves from the world, not only to, to, to love one another here in our own church or a quote-unquote holy huddle, but we are to interact, we are to engage with the world, engage with others, to live with them, and to do so in peace. All of the people, of all the people in the world, of all the people in the world, Christians, it is Christians who are to be the most peaceful. Why? Because our hope lies not in what is seen, but what is unseen. Not in the, the present, but in the future. Not in what is now, but in, in the kingdom to come. Not in the accumulation of possessions on earth, but our, earth, but our heavenly inheritance in Christ. Not in the promises of the world, but in the promises of God. In our passage today, we learn from the patriarch Abraham about peacemaking in the world in which we live. You'll remember that God had promised Abraham multiple times land, seed, and blessing. After having received from God the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise of a son, the seed, we saw that earlier in chapter 21, that's Isaac. In the next verses, 22 through 34, we get a hint at more fulfillments coming. Our story, though, begins in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, it had been five years since the last time Abraham and Abimelech interacted, or the last time it was recorded. That's back in chapter 20. In those years between the two, the two times, God had blessed Abraham, which was evident by his wealth and his miraculously born son, Isaac. Even Abimelech recognized God's blessing on Abraham. He does so in there, just there in verse 22 when he says, God is with you in all that you do. He could tell there was something different about Abraham. He could tell the blessing of God was in fact on Abraham. And Abraham was indeed blessed by God. 
He was told that he would be, a ble- be blessed and to be a blessing. Back in chapter 12, you can turn to your Bible just a few pages back to chapter 12 of Genesis and look at verse 2 and 3. And God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Due to this blessing that is now becoming apparent, Abimelech wanted to ensure peace between between him and Abraham. Or as one writer says, to secure friendship between the men and their families. All right, so Abimelech, the, the point of, of Abimelech seeing in Abraham uh, the, blessing, uh, the blessing of God and wanting to, to benefit, wanting to benefit from it. Now, we, we should note here, uh, we don't know if this is the same Abimelech from chapter 20. Uh, Abimelech actually isn't a name, it's a title. Uh, he was the king, a, a king over a certain area, king of Gerar. But either way, whether it was the same person or not, we seem to understand that he knew something about Abraham. Not only the blessing of Abraham, but about Abraham's conduct with Abimelech in chapter 20. Look at verse 23. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Abimelech wanted to ensure that Abraham would be honest with him. Now you have to remember what happened in chapter 20. Chapter 20, Abraham goes into the the area where Abimelech is, is king over and he decides that he's going to pull his same scheme that he used when he went to Egypt in chapter 13, and that was to say Sarah, his wife, was actually his sister. So he, he, he lied. He purposely deceived the king in order to protect himself from being killed because he thought likely they would see Sarah. They would want Sarah. They would kill him and take Sarah. So if he would say, she's my sister, then he would have to bargain or try to uh, arrange a, a, uh, a fee for his sister. And by that time, they would be able to make an escape. That's the scheme. The scheme didn't work the first time. It didn't work the second time either. Uh, it didn't work. And sin never works out for us in the end. And nevertheless, the scheme failed tremendously in chapter 20 and chapter uh, 13, putting Sarah in jeopardy, uh, putting the promise of God of the, the son in jeopardy. It actually put Abimelech in jeopardy. It put Abimelech's house in jeopardy. Our sin goes much further than we know. Our sin has consequences. And the, the, consequence, the consequences extend further than you can control, further than we can even imagine. It affects more people than you may think. And yet God even after Abraham did all of that, even after Abraham multiple times failed in this way, it failed in other ways. God did not define Abraham by his failures. And we know that because by the evidence of Abraham's life, one, he was blessed, but secondly, it is, is apparent that he got right with the Lord. 
And he began again. And what else can we do when we fail? What else can we do when we fail but to repent and to begin again? One writer says it this way, men are not to be judged by the presence of faults, but by the direction of their lives. Which means we all have faults. We all have failures. We all have sin in our pasts. That is not what defines us. That is not what only we are to be judged or namely to be judged upon. The way forward is not to live in the past. The way forward is not to be defined by our sin, but to deal with our past first. Yes, we we must deal with our past. We're not saying sweep everything under the rug and move forward. No, we're saying deal with our past. Repent of our sins. Get right with the Lord and then begin again. Then begin again. Forsaking sin and following Jesus by faith. Our sins need not define us. They did not define Abraham. They did not define Jacob. They did not define David. They did not define Peter. They did not define Paul. And they ought not to define you and me. Thank God for the forgiveness of Jesus. And in him, by grace, God makes all things new. So even though there's a past for Abraham... He moved forward in faith. By the fruit of Abraham's life, he was a man clearly worthy of respect. But not only did Abimelech respect Abraham, but here we see that Abraham respected Abimelech. He treated him with mutual respect. This king uh, was a good man. He was a, 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 a man of kindness and integrity, but he was not a follower of Yahweh. He was not a follower of, of, of the Lord at all. Nevertheless, what we see with Abraham here is that he gave appropriate respect to the authorities in his life as he agreed upon his requests. Verse 24, verse 24 says that, I, that, that Abraham said, I will swear. So I, I will agree with that. We are called to respect the people in positions of authorities over us. Even when they are, as James Montgomery Boy says, less than fully upright. Certainly, we are not to condone evil. It's not what we're saying this morning. But biblical principles call us to respect our authorities, to respect our governing authorities, and to pray for our leaders, 1 1 Timothy chapter 2. For God has instituted government, for instance, for our good, Romans chapter 13. The command of respect has uh, has come on hard times in the past few years for some. No matter what side of the the, the political aisle you are on, everyone seems to have kind of struggled with whether or not we're going to listen to, obey, honor, respect authorities. But let us take our notes not from pundits, not from podcasters, but from Jesus, from the apostles, from the word of God. In John chapter 19, Verse 11, we see how Jesus acknowledges Pilate's authority. He says, Pilate, you have authority, but what? It's only because God gave you that authority. 
But nevertheless, the point is that Jesus acknowledged the authority of Pilate, even though he was a man of poor character. The apostles, the apostles withstood the authorities. That's absolutely true. There is a a time to withstand them, but they acknowledged them. They withstood them only when they crossed the line. James, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5, when they say, we'll obey God rather than man. And that's because the authorities had crossed the line. John Calvin, writing the Institutes of Christian Religion, first published in 1536. So this is during the Protestant Reformation. He writes this. We are not only subject to the authorities of princes who perform their office towards us uprightly and faithfully as they ought, but also to the authority of all who, by whatever means, have got control of affairs, even though they have performed not a whit of the prince's office. Which means to say, we don't get to say, that's not my president's. That's not my governor. That's not my authority. No, if that's the president, that's the president, and it's your president. If it's the governor, it's the governor, and it's your governor. If it's an authority over you, then it is authority over you. That's how this works. And what our response then is to that authority is how then we respectfully treat that authority. Calvin wrote during the Reformation, they knew a thing or two about conflict with authorities at that time. Uh, the reason for this view of authority is at least twofold. And one is, is already said, it's biblical. Biblically speaking, we are called to respect the authorities over us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't advocate for justice. That doesn't mean we don't speak truth to power, quote unquote. But it does mean that we respect our authorities. But the second reason that we could have this view of authority is because we know who's actually in charge. Why do we get ourselves so worked up about the human authorities? You know who's actually in charge? (laughs) The the, the ultimate ruler of all things. The one who raises up and puts down kings. We don't have to get ourselves all worked up. We don't have to be afraid that the sky is going to fall down on us. There is someone who rules over all of that. Heaven rules over all of that. So with great confidence, we can respect the authorities over us, knowing that God is sovereign over all of it. I don't have to get myself worked up about those things. God's will will be done. Some Christians are far more animated, far more driven by partisan politics of the day than they are by the truth that God rules, that his will will be done, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Christian's hope is not in a present political party or a president. The Christian can properly respect authority because we know God is ultimately in charge. It's as simple as that. And so we can we treat our authorities with respect. The respect that their office deserves. Abraham serves as an example to this respect. Abimelech may not have been respectful in every, every way or honorable in every way. And yet proper respect is given to him without compromise. We'll see that in a moment. Though Abraham was respectful, peace between the two was not made without justice. There is no peace without justice. Look at verse 25 and 26. Then Abraham reproved Abimelech. 
about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. Patrick, you can go ahead and advance that. I'm sorry, you, you were right. So what do we see here? We see here an obstacle to peace. So Abimelech wants to have peace, and Abraham's like, I'll agree with that, but here's a problem. We have a problem between you and me, that your servants have seized a well of mine. They have taken something that was not there. There's an injustice on the part of Abimelech's servants, and Abraham wanted to make this right. Now, you can remember that in that region at that time, water was kind of important. You kind of needed a well. And so the idea of someone taking your well wasn't like, oh, I'll just get another one at the store. Right? No, that, that was kind of a, a big deal to them. Necessity for life. And apparently, these servants had done this in an unjust way, taking what was not theirs. And so Abraham confronts the king. It's his servants. And Abraham confronts the king about the matter. We see here that Abimelech pleads innocence. I didn't know anything about it. You haven't told me about this. Now, we don't know if Abimelech's telling the truth about that or not. That's not the point. The point is that he eventually agrees with Abraham, and we'll see the covenant moves forward involving that well. But there's a real difference between making peace and keeping peace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 Jesus says this, is the, the section of, of Matthew called the Beatitudes. And there's these blessed, blessed, blessed. And in verse 9 it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the sons of God. Peace is to be made. Peace is not to be kept. You say, that sounds like you're saying the same thing. But no, they're actually two different things. Keeping peace involves appeasing people. It involves overlooking things for the sake of avoiding conflict or perceived unity. Whereas making peace involves confrontation. It involves reproving. It involves justice. It involves repentance. It involves reconciliation. It involves making it right, not overlooking it. John Stott, in his study guide, on the Beatitudes, writes the following. The words peace and appeasement are not synonyms. For the peace of God is not peace at any price. He, God, made peace with us at immense cost, even at the, the price of the lifeblood of his own son. We too, though in lesser ways, find peacemaking a costly enterprise, to proclaim peace, peace, where there is no peace, is the work of the false prophet, not the Christian witness. Jeremiah 6 and 8. When we ourselves are involved in a quarrel, there, is, there will be either the pain of apologizing to the person we have injured or the pain of rebuking the person who has injured us. We are called to make peace. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see God. 
Abraham shows us there is no peace without justice. This is not peacekeeping that Abraham was about. It was about peacemaking. It has a side of the peace. These two men make a pact. They, they make an agreement. Look at verses 27 and following. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. Now there's an interesting thing right here that if you uh, would go back to chapter 20, just go back to chapter 20, we'll just show it here. Chapter 20, verse 14. This is after Abraham has, has schemed his way. It's been found out that he lied about Sarah. Um, and now Abimelech, comes to him, confronts him. And then in verse 14, and Abimelech took sheep and oxen. So Abimelech gives Abraham sheep and oxen. And now here in chapter 21, verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them back to Abimelech. I keep reading verse 27. And the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Now, this word covenant uh, we saw back in chapter 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham. The word covenant means an agreement between two parties. The actual, the original word here for covenant means to cut, or to cut a covenant. And Jeremiah gives us this picture of what the ceremony of a covenant would look like, where they would cut the, the animal, the sacrifice, in half, and the two parties who are making the covenant would pass through the sacrifice, the, the space between the two animals, together, signifying that if they would break the covenants, it would be to them, uh, their, their cost would be as these animals. If we break this de death, they're basically saying, I'll die before I break, uh, or, or I'll break this covenant because of that. So having divided the animals, the covenant parties would pass through, confirming the pact. Abraham gave him the, these, these lambs as, as a guarantee of, uh, of this, this covenant. And so here, Abraham enters into a treaty or into a covenant with the king. And now we remember that this was a godless king. This was not a father of Yahweh. This was not someone who was, who was obedient to, to the Lord. But Abraham does this uh, because of the, the, the mutual respect and the mutual interests that they both had in peace. And, and there's a principle here that uh, James Montgomery Boyce points out, that we may disagree with someone on, on other issues, but Christians can and should cooperate with those who share our interests for the good of the matter at hand. Now, now there's a place for separation, and we understand that, and there's a reason for separation, but sometimes Christians get so siloed from one another that we can't even agree on the things that we agree on. We can't even get together on the, the very core things that we do agree on, and there's a place for that, and there's a place for Gathering, gathering together or combining together or agreeing together for the sake of justice, for the sake of peace. And here we see Abraham doing that and doing so without compromising his own beliefs, which leads us to verse 22, the rest of verse 22. It says, Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up 
and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted the terebisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So having made the covenants, they named the place. They named the place Beersheba, which means well of the oath or well of seven. And then what we see is the two parties separate. They go their own ways. Abimelech and his commander return to the land where they were from. And Abraham plants a tree and he does so as a witness. He does so as a witness of the covenants. He does so as a symbol of fruitfulness and as a sign of what one commentator says, faith and security. Abraham was then, uh, we see, calls out to the name of the Lord, the everlasting king. Verse 34 says, and he sojourned many days uh, in uh, the land of the Philistines. Many days uh, would have meant, or could have meant, uh, 15, 10 to 15 years that he stood there, he was there. And the reason that they would, uh, that, that might be the case, is that when we get to chapter 22, the very next chapter, Isaac is a young man. He's, he's moving into his younger years. And so, uh, young adult years or young men years. And so that correlates well with the passage. But having planted that tree, we hear that, that Abraham calls out to the Lord, calls out to Yahweh. That's public worship. So having made this covenant, Abraham uh, participates in worship to God. It's in this way, he, he's demonstrating that he, he's acting without compromising his own beliefs. He didn't have to believe what Abimelech believed in order to join in the covenant for the sake of peace and justice. No, he could, held his, his belief. He continued to worship God as Yahweh. And even calls here the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The everlasting God. The, the God that, that continues on. The God forever. This is public worship. And we find that this is not the first time that Abraham has publicly worshipped the Lord. If we go back to chapter 12, we often see it with, a, with an altar. Here it's, he plants a tree and he cries out or he calls out to the Lord. In chapters 12 and chapters 13, it's an altar that Abraham makes and he worships the Lord. Abraham would not compromise. While living among the Canaanites, God's blessing and Abraham's faith was, was evidence it was evident to, to those who he lived near. Uh, Christians are, are called to live a different kind of life. We are called to be set apart. The Bible calls that being sanctified. We are called to be salt and to be light. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. And by salt, he means that, that, that we influence the world. That it, it, it changes the way things are. By light, it means that what was once dark is now exposed. We are not of the world. We are not of the world, but rather sent into the world that the world might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. And so the question comes to us, are we living in such a way that the world would notice the blessing of God on our life? It was evidence that God had blessed Abraham, that God was with Abraham. 
In what ways is your life demonstrating that God is with you? That the blessing of God is on you? Or we could say, if you were taken out of the world, if you were taken out of your community, or out of your workplace, or out of your school, would anything be different? Would anybody notice? Would the impact of your life and your testimony and the blessing of God on your life have any effects? Would the world be a darker place? We can think about that individually. We can think about that as the church of God. If our, our church closed down today, would, would Carol be a less, a, a darker place? We hope that we can say yes to that, of course. We hope that our lives are actually producing what the Spirit calls us to do. Abraham sought to live in peace, and he worked for peace in the place that he lived. Peace does not happen on accidents. Peace does not come without work. Peace does not come without reconciliation, without confrontation. True peace requires resolve. But this peace that we're talking about, this kind of real peace, this peacefulness that a Christian can have, this peace that you can live with, where the, the world seems to be crumbling, that kind of peace only comes from being at peace with God. So the only people who can truly make peace are those people who have received the peace. The only way you receive the peace is coming to God through Christ. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, if you're using a pew Bible, 942, 942, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we've been declared righteous by faith, that's how we are saved. We're saved by grace through faith. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through how? Our Lord Jesus Christ. You want peace today? You want the peace that passes all understanding? You want the peace of God? You have to have, you have to first have peace with God. And how does peace with God come? But through Christ. Being justified by faith through Christ. This peace is made possible because of the peace with God through Christ. That's what Christ came to do. He came to make peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. He came to make peace. Peace. And as Jesus came to make peace, he then leaves us with the job of what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. Which reconciliation is making peace. It's being made at peace with God. The ministry of the Christian is to help other people know how they can be made at peace with God. We may call that evangelism. We may call it sharing the gospel but it's the ministry of reconciliation. It's helping other people know the peace that you have, the peace that Romans chapter five, verse one tells us. And so then we end this morning where we began with Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, 
so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, not all people want peace. You may have experienced this in your life. And there are people who don't want peace. They, they want chaos. There, there are groups around the world who, who have no interest in chaos or interest in peace. They, they want chaos. But there are individuals. And maybe you've experienced these individuals. They don't have any real interest in peace at all. They have interest in chaos, in division. But Paul says here, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So in that case, with the one who does not want peace, there will not be peace. Peace is not possible. But Paul is saying, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Which means to say, you and I should not be the reason that there isn't peace. So if there's conflict, if there's a, a, a division, we shouldn't be the reason for the division. Christians, we should be the ones ready to repent or ready to confront. But of course, all of that comes with the cost as well. And Abraham shows us how to live at peace with his neighbor. How, how we too can live at peace with our neighbor. May God help us. May God help you to live at peace with your neighbor. May we be people who make peace, not keep peace. Let's pray. Father, Help us this week as you give us opportunities to make peace. Opportunities to, to bring about peace between parties. Father, we recognize we only could do that because we've been made at peace with you. And the only true peace comes through you. And so help us to point people to the ultimate peacemaker the one through whom each one of us can be at peace with you today. Would you help us today? For those who, who are not at peace with God today, who are with us, who don't know for certain where they stand with you. Maybe they're fearing what the future holds. Maybe they don't know what their eternity looks like. We pray even today that they would hear the words of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The peace with God comes through being justified by faith through Christ. And they would come to you, God, through your Son, seeking salvation, repenting of their sins and believing on the work of Jesus on the cross for their sins. May their faith find a resting place today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God.